All right, welcome everybody as we kick off our second half of the college season this week. If you haven't been paying attention to our 16-8 and 8 podcast record through the first six weeks, then you're not that even good of a listener. So meanwhile, in 2022, as far as our services are concerned, our overall record is 77-38-4. That's at 67%. Our record last week was 14-7. and 7. Again, 67%. And our lock caliber plays are 24-6, and 6, tallying an 80% rate. Sounds like good math to me, Jeff. It's winning, baby. It's all about winning. This week, Oracle Sports is releasing our college lock of the year, which is our absolute strongest game of the year. Over our 34 years in the business, we've hit 85% of these plays and are 29-4 and four and currently on a 10-year winning streak with our lock of the years. That's even better math, Jeff. So it is. It is. It's, it's all, I mean, you know, I don't want to jinx it, but it's pretty good. Uh, you know, we have our lock of the year weekend package on our website at theoraclesports.com and are featuring a double guarantee on the lock and the weekend. This weekend will no doubt make you fall in love with betting all over again. And with now, what's coming to be, it looks like, you know, betting on apps and phones and such is going to be a, a really new and upcoming big business. So jump in, get our podcast winners, check out theoraclesports.com. We, this weekend, we have a minimum of 12 plays being released and are guaranteeing not only that our lock of the year wins, but that you also finish a minimum, a minimum of 10 games above 500 or our service is free for the rest of the year. Free. Free for the rest of the year, right? Free. All you got to do is just look at your phone and get the text with all the plays coming out. All right. I just told you our overall numbers. So it's a win-win no matter how you look at it for only $99. Okay. On our podcast, I'll be covering the top 10 Pac-12 matchup between UCLA and Oregon early and the whiteout game at night with Penn State, Minnesota, and Happy Valley. Jamie's going to start us off in the, in the NFL with the Colts and the Titans, and he's going to wrap up our weekend with the Bears and the Pats on Monday night. So again, check out theoraclesports.com, and I'll start off with our afternoon kickoff game in UCLA and Oregon right now. So this matchup, is, I figured I'd start with this one. It's another top 10 matchup with teams that I haven't yet covered in the Pac-12 this year. And it's funny because the Pac-12 has been getting some love as of late in the rankings as well as national coverage from coast to coast. And this particular matchup with UCLA and Oregon features two head coaches that actually couldn't be bigger polar opposites. For Oregon, you have Dan Lanning, who starts his rookie head coaching campaign fresh off a national championship with Georgia last year as their defensive coordinator. Lanning cut his teeth with Mike Norvell in Arizona State when Dan was a grad assistant and Norvell was the offensive coordinator. The two reunited in Memphis in 2016 before Georgia snagged him away in 2018 after Mel Tucker left his defensive coordinator position there to try head coaching in Colorado, which obviously didn't work. and He just kind of flipped around a little bit and then he switched over to Michigan State. Doing a hell of a job at Michigan State. Yeah, yeah. He actually didn't do so bad for Colorado, but Michigan State was like, nope, nope, you're coming here instead. So, And then uh, after last year's national title, Oregon emptied their bank and gave him a six-year, $29 million contract after Cristobal, 
departed for Jamie's team, the U. Yep. Lanny went right to work, and he plucked Kenny Dillingham from Florida State. Dillingham has had multiple years as a successful offensive coordinator and quarterback coach at FSU, Auburn, and Memphis, where actually him and Lanning got to know Kenny through Mike Norvell. So kind of, you know, it's always everybody in three degrees of separation. They all seem to come back again and work with the people that they know the best. Norvell's 2020 Florida State team was among the most explosive in the nation and finished 18th in place for 60-plus yards and 8th with three touchdowns longer than 75 yards. So, I mean, he's pretty good at what he does. On the defensive side, Lanning scored Josh Lupoy, who he worked alongside for a year at Alabama in 2015 with when they won a national championship there. Lupoy has since picked up three years of NFL coaching experience in Jacksonville, Atlanta, and Cleveland, and it's clear that Lanning expects a championship level of play out of his ducks with these guys coming in, and hence has already propelled them to a number 10 ranking, 5-1 start, and their only loss in the season opener when they got bludgeoned by Georgia, which is apparently what everybody seems to be doing these days. So former employers. Absolutely. That's how it goes. Man. But Jeff, how about uh how about the Pac-12, man? All, all the talk the last few years about how, you know, it's, the conference has been in the pits and and uh, you know, all these uh these schools, you know, flirting with the opportunity to leave and, you know, find greener pastures elsewhere and you know, we're talking about a top, you know, a top 10 matchup, right? Well, and they're also bringing in guys. I mean, you know, you look at they're taking guys from Oklahoma and like Riley. I mean, you got defensive and offensive coordinators that are leaving the SEC to go there to play in the Pac-12 and build these programs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, basically so far, and I, I'll mention it in a second, but a lot of them were talking about the USC's and the Utah's and stuff. They're overlooking even like these. I mean, the, the work that Chip Kelly did when he was, you know, at Oregon was second to none. You know, oh, they were very successful. In fact, Chip Care, I mean Chip Kelly, when he was at Oregon, I mean they ended Pete Carroll's dynasty at USC for all intents right. and purposes. Right. I mean they were, you know, they were in that national championship game against Auburn, and that kind of kicked off the whole stigma. You know, everybody, everybody sucks against the SEC. With this, you know, pretty finesse, uh, high up tempo offense, where you know, look, you know, it, it it just puts all kinds of points on the board, but. You know, not against a team that's got about six future pros on the defensive line. Right, hence the bludgeoning from <laughs> Georgia earlier this year when they were thinking, oh, we're going to do some work against our old, you know, foe or ex-employers or whatever, and, yeah, not so fast. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that do you think that one of the reasons that the Bruins haven't been getting the recognition that some of us think that they should could be that – you know, there's still a bit of stank on Chip Kelly's name from his time with the Eagles. No, no, I think it's probably a little bit more of Jim Mora Jr. They started going downhill with him. There's then, a name. And they never really kind of picked it back up. And then Chip Kelly now is actually turning it back around. They're starting to get that hype. You know, I mean, let's put it this way. Landing and Chip Kelly, though, couldn't be more different. Uh, Kelly is entering the game with 32 years of coaching experience and 13 as a head coach compared to Lanning's rookie season, mm-hmm. you know. And most everybody remembers Chip for his explosive offense when he was in charge of the Ducks. He coached them their BCS games each of his four years there, three consecutive outright conference championships, 
and a division title all in from 2009 to 2012. And then after, you know, the number two ranked Oregon got put on two years probation in 2013 for his use of quote unquote scouting services, Kelly spent the next four years in the NFL and everybody forgot about him. He was with the Eagles and the 49ers and, you know, he tried his best to work his well-known blur offense, which we were just talking about a little bit earlier. It doesn't really kind of always translate over to the pros. And, uh, you know, he led the Eagles though to back to back 10 and six seasons, but Philly ran him out after he wanted full control of the roster and traded the likes of Shady McCoy Kiko Alonso and Nick Foltz. And yeah, don't forget Deshaun Jackson, too. And Deshaun Jackson, who, yeah, I guess the Ravens just picked up, see what they're going to try to do with him now. He's on my fantasy team. Uh-oh, you better get him early, guys, right? So uh, now it's out. Everybody knows it now, so whoever's got him is going to be happy in their fantasy now. So, uh, But but Kelly was an abysmal 2-14 in his one year with the 49ers when he went over there. And that was kind of – then he, he was like a – just kind of like his exit from the NFL. He was a studio analyst for ESPN for a year. I think everybody kind of remembers that a little bit. And then he took over at UCLA in 2018. And UCLA, as we just previously mentioned, was heading south quick under Jim Moore Jr. And uh, But, you know, Kelly has been steadily progressing. And now he has his Bruins looking like the old Ducks with a 6-0 start and a number 9 ranking. So he's kind of coming around full circle with that. Um, on the Bruins defensive side, Kelly sneakily brought in Bill McGovern this year. There's a little bit of a kind of a, con, you know, not really a controversy, but people didn't know that his old defensive coordinator, he kind of just said he's not going to be with us any longer. He didn't make a big announcement. And then he brings in Bill McGovern, and he just came off of a one-year stint as a linebacker coach for the Chicago Bears. They worked together when they were in Philly, and since McGovern was the, you know, he was with the Giants and Nebraska, and uh, he's done a lot of pretty good work in both of those places. Offensively, you already know how Kelly rolls. He wants the ball and has effectively been the offensive coordinator since he arrived in UCLA. And uh, the strange thing, I think, though, about these two teams is that no one is really hyping either of them like we talked about. It's, it's, it's been, you know, all... Of USC and, and Utah and you know, Kyle Whittingham with his, you know, kind of togetherness and his staff and how he builds from within. You got USC with Lincoln Riley and a transfer portal king stuff and all. Nobody's talking about these two teams. And, you know, meanwhile, this matchup highlights two ridiculously talented quarterbacks that, you know, aren't getting as much press either in DTR, you know, in UCLA and Bo Nix. Uh, these guys have together combined for over 3,000 yards passing, 39 total touchdowns, 27 of them through the air, and only five picks through six games. Not to mention, they've also totaled over 560 yards rushing as well. So the top running backs for both teams, Bucky Irving for Oregon and Zach Charbonnet for UCLA, have amassed over 1,000 yards already and eight touchdowns. And both average over seven yards per carry. Not to mention UCLA's Jake Bobo and Oregon's Tony Franklin, who average 16 yards a catch, have over 800 yards receiving, and also eight touchdowns together. So even with the NFL 
defensive coordinators on both sides of the ball, defense still might be optional in this game, as they both give up an average of 25 points a game already before facing this high-caliber offense that they're going to see. But, you know, Jamie, we all know that we don't watch college football to see defense. We're far more attracted to the 42 points a game that these two teams are averaging. Take the overs. Take the overs. Right. Take I mean, the overs. Although it may not, you know, go as well in the NFL with the, you know, the, the air raids and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I just, the blur offenses, the, the running shoots back with Warren Moon in the day and all that stuff, you know, they don't really always transfer over to the NFL. Defense is more probably what sticks to that, but everybody loves it. Explosive college football. And what could be more fitting than the Chip Kelly Bowl for that? So let's have some fun with some stats for a little bit. Um, the Bruins are 8-0 as underdogs of greater than three points off of a double-digit straight-up dog win. But on the flip side, they're only 1-11 as dogs with revenge versus Versus an opponent that's coming off of rest or a bye week, which is fitting because these both are. Uh, Kelly's UCLA team is also 10-6 and six as a road dog in his first four years there as well. And the Bruins are also 6-3 and three straight up and 7-2 and two against the spread in road games over the last three years. And 12-7 and seven straight up and 13-6 versus conference opponents. So pretty good positive marks for UCLA in that. For the Ducks, they're 12-0 and at home but only 7-5 against the spread over the last three years. And are 14-5 straight up, but only 9-10 against the spread versus their conference opponents over that same time. So while Oregon, you know, has some stellar three-year straight-up numbers, like 16-3 <laughs> as a favorite, 5-1 in October, and even 43-18 after a bye since 1992, it just seems that all their ATS numbers are either kind of just average or below average. Like they're 10 and 9 against the spread as a favorite. So taking all this into consideration, you can't ignore Chip Kelly's 0-3 straight up mark against his former team with the Ducks. So, however, the last two times, the last couple years that they played each other, they were both decided by only a field goal. And his triple revenge factor coming into play. I believe that he'll finally figure out a way to win the turnover battle in this one. And get his Bruins to the promised land. As he scores the outright win as a six point underdog in Eugene, Oregon. Give me the Bruins 35 to 31 over the Ducks. Now over to you, Jamie, for some NFL. All right, Jeff, thanks for the uh, the analysis there on the Pac-12 matchup. Uh, now we're going to segue over towards Sunday, where in a week without many notable matchups, a pivotal AFC South clash takes center stage as the Indianapolis Colts look to continue building momentum as they travel to Nashville to face the rested Tennessee Titans, fresh off their bye for their latest encounter at Nissan Stadium. Uh, the Titans are favored by 2.5, and the uh, total in the game here is 42.5. Coming into this season, there was some legitimate dark horse buzz, no, no pun intended, surrounding the Colts, th- who at 3-2-1 tie, are tied for first in the AFC South, um, who after collapsing down a stretch late last season, 
appeared to have added the necessary reinforcements to return to the playoffs. Indeed, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard rolled up their sleeves and got down to business in the offseason, hiring longtime defensive coordinator Gus Bradley, while adding players that fit his preferred system. Jeff, he's the architect of Seattle's cover three defense. Indeed, indeed. I've been watching him this year so far, and he's got that defense rolling. I think the defense is looking really good so far. Yeah, and they're starting to get guys back uh, from injury. Um, and they added some uh, players to fit that system, such as Yannick Ngakwe, Maryland graduate, Absolutely. and Stephon Gilmer, former Defensive Player of the Year, shut down corner with the Patriots. However, the biggest change came at quarterback, where Indianapolis pivoted hard in trading away Carson Wentz in favor of acquiring the services of Matt Ryan in a separate deal with the Falcons in the continuation of a maddening trend. In five years with the franchise, Reich has had five different starting quarterbacks heading into each season with a new signal caller. All right, Jeff. Reich- that's crazy, though, Jamie. I didn't. I wouldn't. I didn't know that. If you just that's a good trivia question. That if you just asked that at a bar, I bet you not everybody would have known that. Now think about it, Reich. Another Maryland, Maryland graduate, yeah. such as self, by the way. I keep saying that. Because yeah, because Je- you know I like the Terps. Jeffrey is a, yes, he's a Maryland, Maryland <laughs> graduate. He, you know, go Terps, go Terps. Go Terps. Um, but uh, Reich was a former quarterback himself. And, of course, you know, he's famous for authoring that, that comeback against the Houston Oilers back in the, yep. uh, I want to say it was the wild card round of the playoffs. He, uh, play, uh, Jim Kelly got hurt. He came in. Lit the Oilers on fire, and that was during one of uh, Buffalo's many runs to the Super Bowl, ill-fated runs to the Super Bowl in the uh, the early nineties. Indeed. But for a guy that you know he was a quarterback himself, you know, just to have this constant turnover at the most important position, it's got to be crazy. And he's got to know better. You know, he's got to know like, man, how can I? You can't work your system. You know, and now you're bringing another guy, and you don't have. Again, we talked about it before in our last podcast. Any preseason games? Yeah, how many preseason? You know, reps did Matt Ryan get? You know, it could have been much. virtually nothing. Could have been much. So now, and we're seeing that on the field, right? So now, you know, whatever five weeks in to the season, and now you know, figure four games of preseason. Well, yeah, they should start figuring out a way to gel now. But you're already, you know, a third of the way into the season, quarter way into the season. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that were, at least that I've heard, um, putting out the idea that you know, Reich's came into this season coaching for his job. And a lot of that is based on the fact that this Wentz situation went so poorly the year before. I mean, if you remember, they went out and they got Carson Wentz at his behest because he was Wentz's offensive coordinator those first two years he was in Philadelphia. Wentz, once upon a time, believe it or not, I mean, he was an MVP candidate before tearing his ACL, and then Nick Foles took over, and the rest is history. And, you know, then Reich, on the strength of that performance, got the job in Indianapolis. But... Um, Wentz, I mean, I don't think he played terribly last year, but he fell apart spectacularly down the stretch. And all you heard was in the, in the offseason, particularly at the Combine, neither Reich nor Ballard were effusive in any kind of praise for the young man. <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, and it kind of feels like, you know, he comes out of college and he gets overhyped. And the thing is about that is that when he comes out of college, you know, he comes from a small school. North Dakota and, State. North Dakota State. Go right, Bisons. right? So... Uh, he comes out of there, lit the world on fire there, and but everybody was talking about his stature and such and how he might not fit the NFL bill and all that. Then all of a sudden they said, well, you know, maybe he can run. Maybe he's going to be, a, you know, another one of those, you know, Steve Young type guys or something like that that's going to run and hustle and, and make some plays. But now it reverts back to, okay, you got a Justin Herbert for, you know, uh, L.A., you know what I mean, who 
is the stature kind of guy. You got these other guys that are coming in that are the stature type of guys that got the bigger frames and get a little bit of more work. And now all of a sudden you might start seeing, hey, wait a minute. Maybe they were on something back when he first came into the NFL. And it just took them a little bit to figure it out. And the overhype is now not so much. Indeed. Indeed. And I hope at some point in time we get a uh, ESPN 30 for 30 in the future uh, about just how the hell Carson Wentz has managed to alienate himself with uh, two different franchises. He's working on the third right now. Uh, I, I just, I, I, I have no answers for it. I have no answers. We're on a separate note, Jeff. Uh, you want to bet a bar tab if you can name the um, four starting quarterbacks that have started the four previous years for the the Colts? A couple of them are easy. Well, we just said went, so you just need to do the other three. No, I'm not betting a bar tab. No, no bar tab. Go ahead, you tell me who they oh, he are. Knows, he knows I can drink. That's what it, uh, <laughs> that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, because I don't know that I know them all. All right, so after varying degrees of success with the likes of Andrew Luck, that's an easy I one. I would have had it. Jacoby Brissett. Because you got to remember, yeah, they, remember, they, they yeah, traded for him, him after Luck. He was a backup role, I thought, at one well, point well, time. He, but I don't he did. Starting. But they brought him in because they brought him in and they had to force him into the starting role because Luck retired midway through a preseason game. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. Crazy. So therefore, okay, yeah, okay. Crazy. And then the other's Philip Rivers, who did take them to the playoffs. Right. And then retired, so he's coaching his uh, thir- I would, I 13 probably, kids. I wouldn't have got Jacoby Brissett as far as the starting work concerned. Yeah, does he? You know what, Rivers, thirteen kids. I don't know. You know what? I I don't want to even joke about that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All respect to Rivers. Rivers had a hell of a career uh, with the Chargers and with the um with with the Colts briefly there. Um, so how has this latest spin of the quarterback roulette wheel played out thus far? You ask. Well, the 37 year old hasn't looked great by any means, and I'm talking about Ryan now. Now that we threw all those names out. There. Real quick though, Jamie. By the way, I did hear on the show the other day they were saying that Andrew Luck, with what he did, he, they sent the franchise back 20 years. That's how it's been playing out right now well you see that they've been grasping at straws to get a quarterback in there and prior to the nfl adjusting the uh, wage scale for these quarterbacks that are drafted number one overall which luck was i mean you know if you missed on a guy there you know as a 20 Raider, years though yeah well, I, I, mean, I think that's it's a pretty storied franchise to go back 20 years you know uh, setting them back 20 years i think that's a bit of an overstatement. I, it might be overrated but, especially with gus bradley defense coming they're going to keep him in games but hey take it from me as a card carrying raiders fan we drafted jamarcus russell he's probably the worst number one pick ever and that <laughs> okay. set us back even further back considerably <laughs> okay it, yeah. It, it yeah and that was back in 2007 so yeah that, that, that's a while ago god damn that's a while ago all right, anyway, getting back to this, um, you know, the, uh, Ryan hasn't looked great. He hasn't. But, you know, you really can't attribute all his struggles to, to his age or, or just, you know, fading by any means. Because the supporting cast around him has been utterly decimated throughout the first quarter of the regular season. First and foremost, the offensive line, which has been one of the league's best groups over the past few years, has really struggled to live up to that billing. With Ryan already suffering 21 sacks, which is over half of the total from last year, and he's only six games into this season. While the rushing attack has mustered just 83.7 yards per game, which is 29th overall, on 3.5 yards per carry, which is 30th overall. Granted... The continued absence of the reigning rushing champion, Jonathan Taylor, has only compounded matters. Though, if I'm being honest, it's not like he was very effective 
prior to suffering a sprained ankle that has sidelined him for the past two weeks. The 23-year-old has plummeted across the board, averaging 24.5 less yards per game and 1.5 less yards per carry than he did in 2021, and after churning out 161 yards in the season opener, which went to overtime, by the way, has managed a meager 167 yards in the three games that he has since participated in. And thus... The table has been set for Ryan, who expected to come into a comfortable situation in which he could play complimentary football behind one of the most productive rushing attacks in the NFL, only to have to carry the offense in what, for his all intents and purposes, is the twilight of his career. Prior to last weekend's 34-27 rally to overcome the Jaguars, the four-time Pro Bowler looked washed up and over the hill, completing 65.6% of his passes for an average of 275.2 yards on just 6.1 net yards per attempt, with more interceptions, seven, than touchdowns, five, while taking those 21 sacks along the way. However, last weekend's performance showed me that he may still have something left in the tank, which may just spark the Colts to go on a run. When we all last saw the Colts, they made the most of their 10 days off, winning consecutive games for the first time this season and coming from behind to get revenge on the Jaguars. Indeed, when these teams met in Northern Florida back in Week 2, Jacksonville put the hammer down in a stunning 24 to nothing shoot shutout. This rematch would prove much more eventful, though it would be another slow start for Indianapolis, who punted on three of their first four possessions and found themselves trailing 14-3 until late in the first half, which is where everything changed. Ryan would drive the home side 54 yards downfield in eight plays, hitting Paris Campbell for a four-yard strike to cut the deficit to four points. After another three and out from the Jags, piloted Indy 37 yards in nine plays as Chase McLaughlin added a 42-yard field goal to draw within one point before halftime. Though the visiting side would respond with a touchdown on their opening possession post-intermission, it would be Ryan and company who owned the second half of play, scoring touchdowns on each of their three drives, while Bradley's defense would stop the visitors on a key fourth and one from the 32-yard line, along with halting a two-point conversion attempt that would have seen them retake the lead on the ensuing drive. Of course, how appropriate was it that the man who has been referred to for well over a decade as Matty Ice, and yeah, Jeff, that's one of the worst nicknames. That course. is a pretty bad it nickname. Um, sounds like a really bad beer. Uh, <laughs> would be the one to put this affair in the proverbial cooler. Leading by one point with two minutes and 44 left to play, the veteran engineered an 11-play, 66-yard drive, hitting Alec Pierce for a 32-yard score to put the game out of reach. So would that make him now the cooler, Matty Ice? I think it, the, the ice has been thawing for a while now. <laughs> um, but the Colts amassed 434 total yards on 29 first downs and converting 10 of 15 third downs, thanks in large part to Ryan, who accounted for 389 passing yards and three touchdowns on 42 of 58 passing, with no turnovers or sacks, which helped vault the Colts into a share of first place in the AFC South. Uh, the 2016 MVP also made a notable bit of history in this one, passing Hall of Famer Dan Marino for 10th on the all-time passing yards list. Uh, you know, Marino retired back in 1999 as the league's all-time leader in passing yards, along with pretty much every major statistical category, right? And I just hate the fact that he's just being left by the wayside because these teams are throwing the ball 50 times a game. It just kills me. Yeah, that's true. It just kills me. Um, young tailback Deion Jackson performed well in Taylor's absence, amassing 121 yards from scrimmage and a rushing score on 22 touches with a healthy Michael Pittman hauling in 13 of 16 targets for 134 yards. 
Defensively, Indianapolis made plenty of plays, with four different players registering a sack of Trevor Lawrence, while also recovering three fumbles on the afternoon. Looking to today's encounter in Nashville, they'll be looking to avenge yet another early loss, in which their late rally ran out of gas in a 24-17 defeat at Lucas Oil Stadium three weeks ago. This was coincidentally the game in which Taylor sprained his ankle, leaving Ryan to carry them. The hosts would hold, were held to just... 38 rushing yards on 23 carries. That's not good math. While Ryan managed to bring them within one possession before ultimately collapsing in the fourth quarter as Taylor fumbled deep in Titans territory on the penultimate drive of the day. Indy has lost five of their last six meetings straight up, including each of the last four. Though this is only the second time in the last seven encounters in which they've been branded an underdog by the odds makers. Right Not a big underdog, though. No. Only two and a half points as an opener. No, the, the, this, the, believe me, when we're done here, you'll, you'll see these two teams are pretty evenly matched. Uh, Reich's troops have been money against the spread in that regard, covering eight of their last ten overall as an underdog, regardless of their opponent, while posting a 6-3 and three record against the spread in their last ten trips to Tennessee. Furthermore, they've won all but two of their last ten ventures to Nissan Stadium straight up. On the injury front, there is serious buzz that Taylor will make his return to today's affair, which would be welcome news for a backfield that has been ravaged by injuries, with fellow tailbacks Naheem Hines and the aforementioned Jackson nursing their own ailments. The defense could also see a boost with the potential return of Shaq Leonard, who has endured a rough start to the campaign. The three-time All-Pro linebacker has been relegated to just one game thus far after rehabbing from off-season back surgery and then suffering a concussion and broken nose in that previous meeting with the Titans and is currently listed as questionable for today's rematch. Jeff, if he's on the field, he might be out for blood. Yeah, I'm thinking so. Meanwhile, flying completely under the radar are the Titans, who at 3-2 and two are tied for first in the AFC South who, for better or worse, appear to be the class of the division for a third consecutive campaign. Granted, Tennessee hasn't been anything remotely close to overwhelming yet, particularly when you consider that this team owned the AFC's number one seed heading into the playoffs last January. With that said, we expected Mike Brable's charges to take a step back this season for a variety of reasons, ranging from the aging tandem of Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry to an exodus of talent on both sides of the football, namely A.J. Brown, whom they traded away during the 2022 NFL draft. To their credit, this has been a very stubborn group, with all but one of their five games thus far being decided by single digits, despite ranking 21st in points scored and total yards and churning out just 102.8 rushing yards per game on a meager 3.7 yards per carry with a two-time rushing champion in their backfield. The offense has managed to punch above their weight class by taking relatively good care of the football with six turnovers in five games, though four of them came in a Week 2 blowout loss versus Buffalo, and making the most of their opportunities within the red zone. Simply put, no team has been better inside the 20-yard line, scoring a touchdown on 92.3% of their trips to this part of the field. Jeff, they're the anti-Broncos. They are the anti-Broncos. Of course, this is where Henry proves his worth, averaging 4.2 yards per 92% carry. 92% is a pretty strong number. Yeah, and I it's mean, not like it's they've been there a few times. No, they've they've had over sixteen opportunities in the red zone. Right, and I know you're going to talk about it, and it's all Derrick Henry. I mean, this guy, you know, they show him working out in the gym and all that stuff or whatever, and that's where it comes to pay off, right there. This guy, this guy looks like a superhero. He does, <laughs> or maybe a supervillain if you're in Indianapolis. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is where the you know King Henry proves his worth, averaging four point two yards per carry and scoring all of his five rushing touchdowns within that area of the field. Coming off a campaign in which he missed the final nine games with a broken bone 
under his foot, there were fears that the 28-year-old would soon hit the proverbial wall. What with the organization preparing themselves for imminent turnover this offseason and drafting Browns replacement Traylon Burks, as well as Tannehill's Malik Willis. It's no secret that most tailbacks look mortal once they get close to 30 years old, and with an opportunity to cut ties with him with a little penalty to the salary cap this coming offseason, we could very well be watching the last days and times of Derrick Henry in Nashville. With that said, the 2022, well, I'm sorry, 2020 Offensive Player of the Year has begun to warm up after a lukewarm start to the season, averaging 100.3 yards per game on 4.3 yards per carry over the last three outings, all of which were victories, including a season-high 114 yards and a score in Tennessee's aforementioned triumph in Indianapolis three weeks ago. In fact, Henry has enjoyed quite a bit of success against his division rivals posting an average of 89.2 yards per game on a healthy 5.2 yards per rush with seven touchdowns and 13 career meetings. Furthermore, this particular matchup may mean more to him than the rest, for it was in last year's second leg of their annual season series that he broke his foot. And speaking of breaking things, Rabel's troops have broken the hearts of many thanks to their acute approach to situational football. Sure, they may give up the most passing yards in the league at 287.6 and the second most passing touchdowns, 12, but they've relinquished a paltry 27.1% success rate on third down, second overall, and a 50% rate in the red zone, which is the ninth lowest figure in the NFL. Getting off the field on third down and not giving up touchdowns in the red zone is usually a recipe for success, one that Rabel clearly learned from his time working under Bill Belichick in New England, right? Uh, right. Didn't that just come into play? I mean, I, another thing I was just thinking of in advance when you were talking about that with uh, New England, uh, you know, Belichick is always really big on, you know, kind of getting that last score before halftime and getting the ball and scoring right out of the half. And I kind of feel like that's what they just did before they hit that uh, bye week to the, to the commanders. Commanders, I think, yeah. had that halftime lead. You know, or, or they were going to, and then Tennessee comes, gets the ball, scores, gets the ball again, scores again, takes the lead. Then it kind of went back and forth a little bit until the end of the game with Tennessee gone. You know, and I find it interesting that out of, you know, it gets misconstrued a bit that this guy was one of Belichick's, like, former assistants. I don't think he coached under him. He played for him, but I don't think he was an assistant coach under Bill Belichick. He worked under Romeo Cornell in Houston when Cornell was the defensive coordinator and Bill O'Brien, ex-Patriot guys, uh, you know, down there. But I don't think he ever actually, you know, worked under Got in Belichick. The mix. Yeah. yeah. But you can say out of his like former disciples, he's definitely been the uh, the most successful, right? I kind of feel like he has. Um, I mean, I could go back probably and think about it a little bit and, and maybe get a couple more. But, I mean, he's – in current times, I feel like I can't think about anybody who's been better than him. Yeah, neither can I. Uh, when we last saw the Titans, they entered their bye week on a three-game winning streak, edging the Commanders in the narrow 21-17 victory on the road that uh, Jeff just referenced. This one was far from an offensive masterclass from either side, particularly for the visitors, who finished with just 241 total yards on 15 first downs and a disappointing 4-14 performance on third down. It was a hard day at the office for Tannehill, who completed 15 of 25 passes for just 181 yards and a score while taking five sacks for a loss of 45 yards along with 13 hits and 15 total pressures. Uh, I think he was in the ice bath, Jeff. Uh, afterwards, I do. Maybe he needs to get put in a cooler for Matty Ice. 
Uh, they're going to hug it out in the ice bath at the end of the game. Oh, that's just a terrible, terrible vision. Um, however, the veteran did refrain from turning the ball over, opting instead to simply manage the game while Henry powered his way through a tough Washington defensive front for 102 yards and two scores on 28 carries. With that said, it was the defense that proved to be decisive in this affair, folks, relegating the home side to 17 first downs, 43 rushing yards, and a paltry 1 of 11 on third down. There's that third down stat again, guys while racking up three sacks and one crucial interception courtesy of veteran linebacker David Long. With the commanders driving virtually the length of the field, they started from their own 11-yard line. Long finally stopped their progress in intercepting Carson Wentz on a short pass to J.D. McKissick in the end zone with just six seconds left to play in the game. Now in his fourth season with the club that selected him in the sixth round of the 2019 NFL Draft, the 26-year-old totaled a season-high 12 sacks along with his first pick of the year. Another Titan that balled out in this contest was young defensive tackle Jeffrey Simmons, who continued to flex his muscles in the trenches, totaling five tackles, one and a half sacks, and a tip pass, along with three QB hits and pressures apiece. Looking to tonight's rematch in, ten- in Nashville, Tennessee is 7-3 and three straight up and 6-4 and four against the spread in their last 10 outings at Nissan Stadium. But Jeff, here's a stat for you. Mike Vrabel is 4-1 and one against the spread coming off of a bye. That's pretty good. So there was one thing I did want to talk about. I was thinking about it while you were talking with it and thinking about Bill Belichick and some of his previous coaches and such. And to your point, you're right. Mike Vrabel never coached for him. He only played for him. Much like who? Oh, Cliff Kingsbury, who we were just talking about earlier. Oh, <laughs> man. So, opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and also Kevin O'Connell. North and south. Right? Oh, Kevin O'Connell, because he's, he's probably in the middle there, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the notable coaches that have come underneath of, of Bill Belichick are just crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, Nick Saban, Kurt Ferentz. Yeah. Romeo Cornell, Charlie Weiss, mm-hmm. Eric Mangini, on and on and Josh on and McDaniels. On. I mean, yeah, Bill O'Brien. And how uh, many of them, as you go through that list, how many of them have been successful in the pros? I know Bill O'Brien's taken the Texans to the playoffs. Yeah, that's yeah. really I mean, it. Yeah, he probably did a little bit more work at Penn State. You know, he did better at Penn State. Well, uh, hey, you know what? You got a really good success story right now with Brian Dable. Right? For the Giants. That's a really good point. We'll see Brian, how long Brian that Davis. lasts, you know. I mean, I guess he took over for like, Joe Judge, who was also a Bill Belichick disciple, and that didn't really work out, you know. So, mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes, you know. But, I mean, really, the, the, the Giants have been chasing the ghost of Bill Belichick for a while. They have. They, they have. have. They have. Uh, he, yeah, must Maybe be. these guys just live there for a little bit, and then they're like, well, we're not going <laughs> to go anywhere, so we're just going to stay here, and it's, we can still probably commute. And he left his mark in the bathroom there in the building. I right. Think that's what happened. Um, however, as, as I stated earlier, uh, the, you know, the Titans have struggled at home against Indianapolis, losing all but two of their last ten encounters straight up and failing to cover the spread in all but three of them. Furthermore, an overwhelming majority of the money is squarely on the Titans. Jeff, 98%. That's too much, Jamie. 98%. As a small home favorite, you know how that works out. Which could make for many unhappy betters by the time this one is over. On the injury front... They may be coming off a bye week, but this team has been going through it from the season opener. With Pro Bowl left tackle Taylor Lewan joining young edge rusher Harold Landry on injured reserve, while rookie receiver Traylon Burks, you know, referenced him earlier, landed on short-term IR with that dreadful turf toe, along with right tackle Jamarco Jones and defensive backs Chris Jackson and Elijah Molden. Furthermore, 
Double defensive back Amari Hooker is listed as questionable after suffering a concussion in that victory over Washington. Jeff, I can't ignore the opportunity to fade the public in such a way. I don't blame you, Jamie. I don't blame you. I mean, especially we were just talking about that whole preseason kind of thing, the lack of it. Now, you know, Matty Ice and the cooler starting to get a little bit hot. You know, maybe it's getting warm in the cooler. Oh, that food's spoiled. (laughs) All that stuff's melted in there. It's kind of coming out, you know. So, I mean, you know, go ahead. But go ahead and finish because I know where you're going to go with this, Jamie. I know where you're going with it. Yeah, I can't ignore it. And uh, given how they came back last weekend, I think that the proverbial switch has been flipped in Indy, particularly with the imminent return of Taylor. So, with that said, I'm taking the Colts to win this one outright, edging the Titans 27 to 21. Th- and over to you for, yeah, you know. I, but first of all, I think that's the right call, man, in this game. I mean, the small underdog, public loves the other side. Mm-hmm. They're always wrong. and I mean, They're I, always wrong. I, I mean, I think that's a good 2-0 start to our podcast right now. And I'll take it away on a nightcap game in the uh, in colleges with Minnesota and, and the whiteout in Happy Valley now. But nice call on that game, Jim. Oh, thanks, Jeff. All right, so heading over to Happy Valley and State College for the whiteout, and which should be another electric atmosphere. Let's start by rowing the boat with P.J. Fleck. Roll the boat. He uh, captured the attention of the national audience when he was at Western Michigan. He took the Broncos from his 1-11 rookie season and turned them around immediately, recording two back-to-back 8-5 and five seasons after, then finishing with an undefeated 8-0 conference record and a 13-1 overall record in 2016. Minnesota lured him away into a five-year, $18 million contract in 2017. And he turned them around in his third year from 5-7 and seven to 11-2. and two. Just like I say, all good coaches do. Their third year is when you can really see what a good coach can do with a program. And he did it. So, hence, he must be a good coach. So, he's been steady at Minnesota. He's compiled a 39-25 overall mark. And is fresh off a nine-win campaign in 21. That was only the fourth time it's happened since 1905 in Minnesota. And yes, his 11-win 2019 season was part of that, along with their best season in over half a century and a top 10 ranking in 2019. That school hasn't seen anything like that in years. I mean, they really, if you got to think about hires in, in college football, that's got to be one of the best ones for a Big Ten in a long period of time. Yeah, Jeff, and I think this dude's really uh, one of the true rising stars uh, in the coaching community. Um, I, I felt that, you know, with so many of these jobs opening up over the last couple off seasons, that he would have leapt for one of them. Uh, I mean, he... he I hate, I'm not by no means am I saying Minnesota's a stepping stone school. I mean it's a Big Ten job. No, it's and, not a stepping stone. You know, no, he's yeah, yeah, definitely making his money there. But it would have been had he had not flipped the script on it and you know had this much success. Yes. Now everybody's bought yes. in. I mean, yes. he's a community figure. He's got great character. He says and does all the right things. I'm going to get to a little bit here with you know his road to boat thing. You know, it's yeah. he did it at Western Michigan. You know, and you know this is the thing. Everybody knows the road to boat. But they don't know where it comes from. And I, I kind of just want to go over it now. And, you know, they just think it's just a hard work mentality. And while that's also true, it is, he actually came up with the phrase as part of his grieving process after his son Colt's death due to a heart condition shortly after his birth while he was at Western Michigan. So he started just saying, you got to row a boat. You just got to keep going, keep working. And, and they kind of instilled that work ethic 
really primarily to help himself get over that hump, you know, too. And then everybody bought in, everybody rallied around, and boom, Western Michigan, here to go, you know. And, and now he is claim to fame, and now he's, you know, carried it over. He actually has that phrase uh, trademarked. I did read that it was trademarked, but I didn't know that that's where it came from. Uh, I guess we'll, a movie will be coming out of that, you know, at some point. Yeah, there was a big fight yeah. about it and stuff. I mean, you know, if you read about it a little bit, there was a fight about it and stuff like that. And, you know, they didn't want to give him the trademark on the road of the boat, but, you know, they didn't want him to use it in Minnesota because they wanted to keep it Western Michigan. Uh-huh. But because he actually coined it, he won that battle, and he could take it wherever he goes now. Mm-hmm. So if he is, you know, a, a, you know, off to a different, you know, maybe NFL or something like that in the future, who knows? Maybe we'll see, you know, the uh, the Seattle team or whoever else. Uh, maybe we'll see Arizona rowing the boat. Rowing the How boat. about you row the boat in Arizona? Right? Hey, that doesn't know, sound hey, right. This, this guy does have uh, NFL experience. I believe he was a wide receivers coach for the Buccaneers for a little bit. So uh, it, it's pro-style offense that he runs at Minnesota. This isn't, it is a pro-style. This isn't Cliff Kingsbury's air raid bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, no, I mean, uh, he's running the ball. I mean, you know, Ibrahim, which I'm going to go over here in a second, too. You know, I mean, this is what he does. And that's what he did at Western Michigan. He yeah, runs the rock. And well, While this guy's coaching a team and patenting trademarks, Cliff Kingsbury just looks like he's out there trying to bag co-eds. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what Urban Meyer did? Well, when <laughs> Wasn't you, that what he was doing on that? Well, when you have three national championships to your credit, they give you a little bit more leeway. You saw Fox <laughs> wasted no time hiring him back. Right. No, you're right. You're right. Right. So, um, Flex, long-time friend, um, offensive coordinator, Kirk. Taraka followed him from their time together in Western Michigan to Minnesota. He's been there ever since. Together, they've produced record-setting numbers at both of the schools. He worked at, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Soraka worked for uh, James Franklin at Penn State, right? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Okay. And uh, he was actually a semifinalist for the Broyles Award in 2019 as well. Hmm. So, I mean, he's also known for his work with Tyler Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Rashad Bateman, mm-hmm. as well as now quarterback Tanner Morgan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, on a defensive side, uh, Joe Rossi is in his sixth year as their defensive coordinator. And his Gophers are 26-11 and 11 since he took over with four games left in 2018 as a defensive coordinator. Let me ask you this. Come the offseason, do you think this guy's a favorite to land a Wisconsin job? hard to say i mean it's hard to say because minnesota is probably going to want to try to keep them because they like to keep that continuity there you know i mean they're building i mean they've got a program now they never had a program how how quick are they going to be to let them go i mean obviously you know if they you know if, if wisconsin goes and unloads the you know the the vault for him or something like that mm-hmm. makes it impossible for him to say no he's going to bolt mm-hmm. but i think if minnesota pays him a little bit he might stick around for a little bit and some coercing a little bit and maybe rowing the boat, you know, um, he might like it. So he might stick around. I mean, he was, you know, like I said, nominated. Well, he was nominated for the Brills award in 2021. They write third in a nation in total defense. So he's also known for NFL players like Antoine Wilfield Jr., Blake Cashman, Kamar Martin, and Boye Mafe. So, you know, I mean, he's putting players in the NFL. So, you know, hence, He's going to get those looks. You know, if you start to put players in NFL, people want you as a head coach. NFL might want you as a defensive coordinator. They're like, if you can coach that talent at a college level, you can probably coach it at an NFL level. So I'm not sure how he is as far as, like, from a 
typically the, the defensive guys don't do as much on the recruiting aspect. Oh no, no, Jeff. I, I was I was talking about I was talking about Fleck possibly. Oh, you talking about Fleck and Wisconsin? Oh no, no, no. I thought you were talking about the defensive coordinator Joe Rossi. No, you see some of these other major programs that are in the uh, the that division of the big of the Big Ten, whether it's Nebraska, whether it's Wisconsin, and you know these are pretty high profile coaching openings and. I mean, it, that's not a major leap from Minnesota's not going to let Fleck go. And Fleck's, a, Fleck's kind of like a family guy, too. I mean, he's not going to just hurry up and keep picking up his family and moving. I think he's got five kids. I think he lost, you know, Colt. But I think he also has two sons and two daughters. I think his daughter's initials, I can't remember. I think her name is Paisley. And I think her initials are PJ, along with his. So that's cool. And, but I think he likes to keep his roots where they are. He's not, real, you know, in a hurry to move. I mean, the Western Michigan... You know, I mean, that's still like the Michigan. He goes to Minnesota. He's kind of still in that kind of same demographic. Mm-hmm. But I, I think this is the school where it's a Big Ten school. I mean, he can make a difference in a Big Ten school. You get good enough, you're competing with Penn State. You're competing with Ohio State. I mean, where else are you going to go? I mean, Wisconsin, yeah, arguably is a, a, a bigger school as far as, you know, history and, and nostalgia and all that stuff. But when you're building something like he's doing in Minnesota, that's – Got its its own you know kind of means for acknowledgement as well. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I can understand. So, okay, but go, go as far ahead, as go, Joe, go the yeah, defensive yeah, guy yeah. Joe Rossi, yeah, you know that's another story. But um, you know now over to the flip side on the, on the, you know for the Nittany Lions, head coach you know James Franklin is in his ninth year there already. I mean, I kind of just feel like he just got hired there. I've been doing this a long time, but he had a two year stint at Vanderbilt where he went twenty four and fifteen overall, and he gave. Vanderbilt, their third nine-win season in school history in 2012. And they were ranked in the top 25 for the first time since 1948. So Franklin's probably, you know, everybody doesn't really remember him at Vanderbilt, but he's probably better known for his recruiting prowess. First at Maryland from 2000 to 2004. Got to keep Maryland in there a little bit, you know, guys. Hey, a lot of people around these parts wanted him to come back and take that job. I did. I can can tell you that from what I did. Uh, you know, and he was their uh, wide receiver coach and recruiter then, and then he returned in 2008 as their offensive coordinator and assistant coach, and then he left Maryland to coach the wide receivers in Green Bay in the NFL in 2005, and then he returned actually to Kansas State for a year, and go figure, who out of Kansas State went to Green Bay? You got it or no? No, you're going to have to give me that one, man. Jordy Nelson. Oh, Jordy Nelson. Boom. There right? We go. And now at Penn State with a 72-35 and 35 overall record and a 44-29 Big Ten record. On top of that, he's sitting fat and happy after he just signed a 10-year, $75 million extension last year to take him through 2031. I think his wife's happy. <laughs> yeah, I think his whole family. They're like, yeah, yeah, I think we'll be staying in Penn State for a while. We like Happy Valley now. Mm-hmm. So he said that, uh, he actually said that he was thrilled uh, for his defensive coordinator, who he added this year. And we'll, you know, because I, you know, love my Maryland and Jamie loves his, you, you know what I mean? He, Franklin, loves his Manny Diaz. Right, and uh, he signed him after, you know, Manny could never really get the U off the ground in his three years there. And, you know, I figured I'd, you know. That was a really tough, it was an odd hire because when Mark Rick decided to retire, it really stunned a lot of the brass down there in Miami. 
And if you remember, Jeff, Diaz was all set to take the temple job. Yeah. Right? And yeah. he basically left them at the altar to go back down to Miami. Now, well, part of words there, Jamie. You know, left yeah, Temple yeah. at the altar. Oh, right? better than fucking him at the drive-thru. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. But, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe he would, you know, he preferred to have a do-over on that, given how things ended in Miami. But you're also talking about a guy that was a homecoming for him. He is a Miami native and such. But everywhere he's been, whether it was in Texas, whether it was in Mississippi State, he's been a dynamite defensive coordinator. I, yeah, indeed. I mean, he's been there for – he's been a defensive coordinator – uh, you know, for 13 years, he's been a, a, it's got 24 years of coaching experience, been a coach for 24 years. Yes. You yes. know, he's known for his aggressiveness at the line of scrimmage, you know, uh, you know, he, and before he was actually Miami's head coach as their defensive coordinator, he had them ranked fourth in the total defense and first in tackles for loss nationally. Hey, he's the, the he's the architect behind that turnover chain. Indeed he is. <laughs> Indeed he is. I don't want to get... Don't digress too far or whatever, but just talking about Mark Rick. That's a guy who, man, I used to love taking that guy. He was one of the best road underdog conference coaches that I've ever seen. And I used to love taking him when he was at Georgia on the road in the SEC as an underdog all the time he would cover. He went to Miami, did the same thing in Miami. And then, you know, then he, you know, he was just done, I guess, after a while. He just couldn't. He Miami burned out yeah. or he had some health issues or, yeah, or something. Just, you know, but I, just, you yeah. know, but I digress, like I said. But uh, yeah, I just, you know, just a little shout out to Mark Rick because I was always following him a long time in the past. He probably won me a lot of money over the years as an underdog. And so I have to appreciate <laughs> that and shout that out. So uh, on the offensive side, while Franklin is certainly more than capable as an offensive coordinator himself, he has implored Mike Yursich who's in his second year at Penn State as their offensive coordinator and 24th year overall as a head coach as well, same as Manny Diaz. Um, in his career as an offensive coordinator, his offensives, check this out, right? This guy's pretty good. And I, I, I wouldn't have known this until I really started doing some homework on this stuff. But his offenses have averaged 6.36 yards per play, which is first among offensive coordinators since 2013 as well as 13.79 yards per completion, which is also first in that same time frame. That's good math. That is good math. And, and you know, I didn't see it coming like when I was when I was doing my homework on this stuff. And I started to put that together, and I'm thinking, man, that's some really good numbers. So, I mean, you know, he's done great work. He's replacing Siraka, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah. Is, there, there we go. There's a game within a game. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so I mean, he's done great work with the offenses of Texas, Ohio State, Oklahoma State, and he's coached the likes of Sam Ellinger, Justin Fields, Justice Hill, James Washington, Mason Rudolph, oh, and lest we forget Tyreek Hill. So that's Sheena. a pretty decent number of names to be coaching as far as Sheena. on the offensive side of the ball, right? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> and then now, you know, part of the reason that I, I chose this game was it stark contrast, though, to my earlier game, which featured nothing but offense in the Pac-12. This game on the other side has two teams that average giving up just 15 points a game combined. Minnesota only gives up 12 points and 264 yards a game, and Penn State's only given up 19 points and 380 yards a game. Well, they play defense in the Big Ten. That's the thing, right? <laughs> you know, you got that offensive Pac-12, let's go, and you got the defensive Big Ten, let's stop. So, however, you know, Penn State's average would be – much lower, I think, with that last week's debacle at Michigan. 
And, uh, and, and they have played a much tougher schedule so far than Minnesota with an overall power rating that's 10 points higher of their opponents played. So uh, Minnesota was happy to get Mohamed Ibrahim back last week. We talked about that a little bit earlier after he missed a Purdue game. And that, that game saw the Gophers only rush for 47 yards. And uh, he made an immediate impact last week with 127 yards and a touchdown to Illinois, even though they limited his touches to 15 in a loss. And then uh, at wideout for Minnesota, there really hasn't been much this year with three guys combining for only a total of 700 yards and only scoring a total of seven touchdowns overall through six games. So I just feel like as a team, they're just the, the wideouts aren't really getting it done. But hence, to your point about you know, about, you know, P.J. Fleck, he runs that, you know, more pro-style offense, and he's going to run the ball, and he's going to just set up the play actions and stuff like that. So, you know, he's not as, as much interested in doing that kind of stuff as well, and the run-and-shoot type of thing, and, you know, the, all the, the tricky offenses. It's grinded out, play some good defense, and here we go. So, Ibrahim is at 694 yards, even with missing a game, by himself, with a total of nine touchdowns, and he and Tanner Morgan are responsible for 70% of the gopher offense and 60% of their touchdown production. These guys are experienced. I mean, you talk about upperclassmen. I mean, they've been in Minnesota for a good bit. I mean, I know Ibrahim uh, was supposed to be a big part of their offense last year, but uh, he lost the majority of, of last year. Uh, Sucker, I want to say it was a knee injury or an ankle injury, like midway through the season yeah. opener against Ohio yeah. State. And he's definitely an NFL caliber running yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'll see him definitely. go out next year. I don't know where he'll go, but, you know, it, it better be a team much like a Jonathan Taylor where, mm-hmm. you know, you want to run the ball a lot and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that pro-style mm-hmm. offense where you're running, running, running. Um, you know, meanwhile, for Penn State, their offense has been a little bit more balanced as uh, Nick Singleton has rushed for 482 yards and seven touchdowns per carry with five touchdowns and dual threat quarterback Sean Clifford. He's thrown for 1,150 yards, rushed for 141, and has a 9-to-2 touchdown-to-pick ratio to go along with four rushing town, uh, touchdowns as well of his own. So Penn State also has Katron Allen, who has 319 rushing yards and four touchdowns, and two receivers in Parker Washington and Mitchell Trinsley, and tight end uh, Brenton Strange, who have combined for over 800 yards and seven touchdowns on the year as well. So they're spreading the ball a little bit more evenly throughout. Um, the interesting thing about this game, though, is that something has to give. Minnesota's coming off of back-to-back losses and only scored 10 and 14 points respectively against Purdue and Illinois, while Penn State suffered, obviously, its first loss of the year. Game. They were embarrassed Just in that game. Out. My God. Which, by the way, we did have Michigan as our best bet last week, along with our 9-3 and overall college record. Ooh. So... Yeah, we, we were on the right side of that game when I was watching that one. I was happy all game, man. Michigan started early, and they finished late. So it was a good game to have money on on that one. Uh, also, Penn State has only scored 17 points in its last two games. So um, so some statistical work. P.J. Fleck is 6-0 against the spread away versus 800 or greater opponents. And Minnesota is 7-4 straight up and 8-3 against the spread on the road games over the last three years. Huh. The, uh, on the flip side, though, kind of – as a road underdog of three and a half to seven points is where it gets them. They're only two and twenty-five straight up, and seven and eighteen against the spread since '92 in that role. Mm-hmm. However, 
they've only been in that role once since in the last three years since Flex been there. Well, so that shows you know they they've leveled up since he's been there. Right. You know. So I mean, they're not in that role as much. So maybe. You know, it's hard to go with that stat. You know, it's a really heavily negative stat, but it's hard to go there because he's not really in that spot no more. So um, in low-scoring games where the total is between 42.5 and 45, though, the Gophers are 10-3 and against the spread since 92. Mm. So that kind of parlays over to saying, okay, well, maybe we do some more work today here with this one. So as far as Penn State, all of their straight-up and ATS numbers are about even, and only a few things kind of even stand out there. Uh, as a home favorite of 3.5 to 7 points, they are 20 and 6 straight up and 16 and 10 against the spread since 92. Uh, however, in the last three years, the Nittany Lions are only a mere 1 and 6 straight up and 2 and 5 against the spread versus winning teams. They can't get up sometimes. I'm looking last week. I mean, you know, they, you know, all you see on ESPN and, and you know stuff like that when you talk about Penn State is how they struggle against top teams. And it's not good when you play in a, in a division where you see. Ohio State, Michigan, and Michigan State every year. Right. They're all winning teams every year. You know, and you just keep losing to them, and you're good, but just not good enough, you know? So, I mean, with all that said, much like you talked about with the pro game in, in, in you know, Tennessee and the Colts, 68% of the public likes Penn State to rebound and cover, and I think they're wrong. A lot of dummies out there, Jeff. I know. Everybody likes sees, and they all think they're different things, but they don't see sometimes. You got to have that crystal ball, Janie. You got to have the crystal ball. So I'll take Fleck and his, his well-known role as a road underdog, even back to Western Michigan as well, to keep this game close and within a field goal. I'm still going to lead Penn State to get this win at home during a whiteout on a Saturday night, but it's going to be much closer. Give me Penn State 27, Minnesota 24, Minnesota with the cover as a six-point dog. Oh, that defense better show up. That defense will show up. And, 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 and they better get... show up. They better show up this week. Oh, they're, they're going to show up. They'll bounce back off of that. I mean, you know, 27-24, they're, they're 24 points to 24 points. There's three touchdowns and a, and a field goal in four quarters. That's not the worst. 41 points, on the other hand, that's a little different. Right? And I feel like they gave up more rushing yards in one half of football than they had in like the previous four games combined. Like that was. But I think that's where Minnesota's going to keep it close because Ibrahim's going to get Lord. his fair share of yards. You he know, should. I mean, he should. He's typically getting twenty-five or so, twenty-six carries. He only got fifteen carries last week. You know, so I mean, he gets back up to full strength. He's going to maybe get 30, 35 carries. Well, I'll tell you a good matchup to look at in this one though is you know you spoke about how Minnesota's receivers are not that experienced. You know, it's definitely not the strength of their team. Whereas before, when they had uh, Bateman and Johnson Bateman, yeah, there, yeah. you know. Um, those guys are going to get, uh, they're, they're going to have to earn everything that they, they can find this weekend because Penn State's cornerbacks are very, very, very good. Both of those guys are, they're on early draft lists Absolutely. and one of them, that's, uh, Joey Porter's yep. son. Yep. So yeah, that, that'd be a good matchup to watch. They can open up some space via the running game with Ibrahim and then, you know, create some play action and, you know, take some shots downfield, then things can open up, but this this might be a little hard for them to move the ball. Well, we'll see. We'll check in in Happy Valley for a whiteout and be excited to see if we can make this 3-0 and for our podcast again this week. So uh, now I'll turn it over to you so you can finish us up on a, on a Monday night matchup with the Bears and the Pats and finish our podcast at a 4-0 record this week. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, now we're going to divert our attention back to the professional ranks. And uh, if you've been listening, and why wouldn't you be? 
you guys know that I, you know, I'm fond of these primetime affairs, and while this one may not be the most entertaining, um, it's still worth a it's still worth a look. So we got the uh, New England Patriots minus seven and a half points at home against the Chicago Bears, and total in the game is low. It's thirty nine and a half. So. Buckled up, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting another primetime showing from the Bears, who at 2-4 and four are third in the NFC North, who have stumbled out of the gates of a brand new era of football in the Windy City. Indeed, despite posting a relatively modest 34-31 and 31 record, including two trips to the playoffs and the franchise's first division title since 2010, Chicago opted to clean house in the offseason, replacing Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace with their namesakes. Matt Eberflus and Ryan Poles. How's that for irony, Jeff? That is some irony. After years of mismanaging the roster, particularly the position of quarterback, enough was enough for one of the oldest organizations in the NFL, who decided to start from scratch, which means resisting quick fixes via trade and digging in deep to evaluate and develop the talent on hand. Jeff, I read a stat where they said no team in the NFL has more new personnel from this year opposed to the previous year than the Bears. And I want, I want to say it's like close to 30 different new players. Is that including Houston, too? I feel like Houston's got a big turnover this year, too. You, but they don't have a new coach. Yeah, that's true. I, I that's think true. that's what this is. Okay. But, hey, man, you know, when we have coaching changes, general manager changes, they want to bring new guys in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. To, you know, to, to fit their systems. Bingo, yeah. bingo. Uh, brace yourselves, Bears fans. This one has all the telltale signs of a lengthy rebuild, which many would agree has been a long time coming. So with a quarter of the campaign in the books, how far along is Chicago under this new regime, you ask? Well, progress can oftentimes be glacial when it comes to sports, which is something that both Everflus and Poles have, haven't been shy about. But then again, what else were they supposed to do other than preach patience at the beginning of, of, of this rebuilding project? I feel like that's what they all do. <laughs> we all have to be patient. We all have to be patient. Then if they have success, they're like, look at what we did. Bingo. Bingo. Offensively, this has been arguably the least entertaining unit in the league, ranking next to last in points at just 15.5 and, and 28th in total yards at 315.6. And though they've been able to rush the football with success, ranking second at a healthy 170.8 yards per game, they reside at the other end of the spectrum in terms of passing. Simply put, no team has been less successful throwing the football than the Bears, who have managed a dismal 144.8 yards per game, 32nd overall, on just 5.3 net yards per attempt, 28th overall, with more interceptions, 5, than touchdowns, 4. Needless to say, this has been a passing league for quite some time now, and if you can't move the ball through the air, then you're going to have a hard time winning many games. The miseducation of Justin Fields was the primary reason that Nagy and Pace were relieved of their duties, and make no mistake that the pressure is on Everflus and Poles to maximize the talent of the 2021 11th overall pick. However, this isn't going to be an easy task, folks, for he struggled mightily as a rookie. The 23-year-old has yet to find his footing within this new system. Fields has regressed in completion percentage, 54.8%, while suffering a league-worst 23 sacks thus far, which equates to a percentage of 16.7%, which is up nearly five whole percentage points from last year. He's got that shoulder injury too, doesn't he? He does, and we'll get to that here shortly. With that said, he is starting to look downfield more, leading the league with a positive 136 
yards per completion, which also, since he's holding on to the ball more, that goes in hand-to-hand with being sacked more often. Um, He's also being utilized more in the run game, averaging 47 yards per game on 5.2 yards per carry, which has been a point of emphasis for new offensive coordinator Luke Getze, who arrived from bitter rival Green Bay as Everflus' choice to helm the offense. Hey, if the Brain Trust wants their quarterback to make a leap, how about they get him some help, though? Uh, stating that there is a dearth of talent in the passing game is an understatement of the century in this case, with only one player hauling in more than 10 receptions thus far, and only two others in double figures, and one of those happens to be their lead tailback, David Montgomery. Again, Poles has been adamant about not mortgaging his future with quick trades, which means that it may be until the offseason at the earliest before they start to address uh, you know, you know, these long-standing weaknesses. When we last saw the Bears, they lost their third consecutive game by one possession, this time coming up oh so short in the waning moments of a listless 12-7 defeat at home to the Commanders. This one wasn't for the faint of heart, ladies and gentlemen, as once again, Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet proved to be the undisputed MVPs of Amazon's broadcast of Thursday Night Football. <laughs> they did a pretty good job on Amazon. And Although I don't like the fact that you have to sign up for Amazon Prime just in order to see them and stuff, but... You know, I think Herb Street was pretty kind to, you know, a fellow Ohio State yeah, you know, quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the uninspiring final score aside, there were some things to be happy about in Chicago. The hosts had little trouble moving the football, amassing a season-high 392 total yards, including a whopping 238 via the run on 37 carries, and converted 5 of 13 third downs. And, you know, they managed to put themselves in a position to win the game late. Unfortunately, Jeff, they just couldn't finish. After the visitors missed a field goal, Everflus' troops took over from their own 38-yard line, with Fields leading them all the way down to Washington's 4-yard line, where the young quarterback would fail to complete his first two passes before connecting with Darnell Mooney, who was tackled barely a yard short of the end zone on fourth down, ending the affair altogether. So this is what bothers me about that, is that, you know, I mean, in the game there were 14-27 passing, for only 154 yards, they had 37 rushes for 238 yards. Why wouldn't they run the ball? Well, they ran on first down. I know, but jeez, I mean. <laughs> it's a passing league, Jeff. It's I a know, passing it's league. just it drives me nuts. Just run the ball. You've had success. The analytics these days, and so many of these coaches, this new generation of coaches, are like they swear by the analytics. That's why, yeah, I know. That's why we're Everybody's going for two. Yeah. Everybody's going yeah. for a fourth down. Look, I mean, uh, this game I was watching the other day, I mean, the guy uh, – Goes for it every single fourth down. Uh, uh, the Chargers. Uh, he, that, he, I mean, he's an all analytic guy. I don't think I've seen a fourth down where he punts. I think he just unless it's maybe in his own side of his own thirty. Yeah. Other than that, he just goes for it. The statistics tell you to do this. Common sense says otherwise. Right. But but he hey, does get it sometimes. But, I mean. But the numbers the numbers have been winning. Lately. But his offense is also better than Chicago. So I think you got to know your team when you're deciding to do true, that. True. True. And the and the game flow. So. That's the one thing. It just drove me crazy. Sorry to interject. No, no, no. I agree with you. You, you know, if you have 37 rushes for 238 yards, God plus, you got a first and goal, run the ball. Mm-hmm. Just run it in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very much a mixed bag for Fields, who totaled just 190 yards with a touchdown and an interception on a mediocre, as Jeff was saying, 14 of 27 passing. He was also sacked on five occasions for a loss of 36 yards and presided over a unit that managed to convert just one of their four attempts on fourth down. 
The backfield tandem of Khalil Herbert and the aforementioned Montgomery amassed 142 yards on 22 carries, while Dante Pettis was responsible for their lone score, a 40-yard strike from Fields midway through the third quarter. Yet another week, the NFL's worst run defense was taken advantage of, yielding 128 yards on 28 carries, including the go-ahead score midway through the final period of play. Looking to tonight's matchup, that doesn't necessarily bode well for the Bears as they travel to Foxborough, for few teams have been more successful moving the ball on the ground over the last few weeks than the Patriots, which I'm going to cover here shortly. And speaking of their history against the Pats, it's not the most flattering. Jeff, Chicago hasn't beaten New England since December 10th of 2000. Yep, and New England is 7-1 straight up against them since 92. Furthermore, they're 3-6 against the spread in their last 10 meetings regardless of the venue and are a miserable 1-5 against the spread in their last 10 trips to the Northeast. On the injury front, the offensive line is currently being held together with packing tape. As Cody Whitehair, Dakota Dozier, and Doug Kramer are all on injured reserve, though Whitehair could return by the end of the month. Uh, furthermore, given the state of this position group, former first-round pick by the Raiders, <laughs> Alex Leatherwood could be called upon to return from a non-football-related illness. Oh, in the aforementioned fields has been nursing a sore shoulder throughout the practice week, though should be ready to go given the extra four days of rest. Meanwhile, where have we seen this before? The Patriots, who are 3-3 three and three are tied for fourth in the AFC East, managed to win despite being forced to start a young quarterback with little to no NFL experience. Shame on any of us who may have doubted the mystical prowess of Bill Belichick, who has crafted yet another successful game plan built around a young passer that few outside of Western Kentucky, in this case, even knew existed. After all, we've seen this before out of the surefire Hall of Fame skipper. Belichick went 11-5 with the undrafted Matt Castle, filling in for an injured Tom Brady back in 2008, while both Jimmy Garoppolo and Jacoby Brissett managed to win their respective starts with Brady while Brady was suspended for the first four games of the 2016 campaign. Of course, you remember Deflategate, don't you? Deflategate. Yes. That's an awesome name. <laughs> Uh, oh, and Nobody has any air in their ball. <laughs> no, no. Uh, clearly. clearly. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what the Bears don't. No, uh, oh, no they and, definitely don't. <laughs> oh, and how could we forget Brady supplanting an injured Drew Bledsoe back in 2001 to lead the Pats to their first of six Lombardi trophies in 19 years? Needless to say, there's a precedent for this kind of thing in Foxborough, with the latest instance playing out before our eyes. During a Week 3 loss at home to the Ravens, Mac Jones suffered a high ankle sprain on the final play of the game, forcing Belichick to roll with Brian Hoyer, who's enjoying his third tour of duty with the team, for the ensuing trip to Lambeau Field to face the Packers. However, the Vets suffered a concussion midway through that affair, forcing Bailey Zappi into action. Now, it would have been easy for the fourth-round pick to fall flat on his face, but instead of capitulating to Aaron Rodgers, the 23-year-old went toe-to-toe with a two-time reigning MVP, very nearly leading the visitors to victory in a 27-24 defeat that needed every bit of overtime to crown a winner. The next week, Zappi deftly completed an efficient 17-21 passes for 188 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. Managing the game as Belichick designed as the Patriots hammered the Lions in a 29-0 shutout. And then came last weekend's watershed 38-15 drubbing of the Browns. Zappi torched Cleveland for 309 yards and a pair of touchdowns on 24-34 passing, creating a discussion in New England that Jones, whom the club drafted 15th overall a year ago, could be fighting for his job. 
You know, Jamie, I've got to say something, man. I mean, this guy, Bailey Zappi, is pretty good. I mean, so far he's had 73% completions and his 4-1 to touchdown at pick ratio. I mean, with a 111 passer rating. And at Western Kentucky, people don't know what he was he did prolific. There. He was prolific. So he actually led the FBS in passing with 5,545 yards and throwing for 56 touchdowns. So, I mean, he had thrown for nearly 1,100 more yards than the second guy, which was Will Rogers of Mississippi State under Mike Leach. So let me ask you this, because we're both we've both been admirers of Big Bill for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because look, if you're if you're a head coach in any professional sport, if you're you're there for over twenty years, you're clearly doing something right. And you know, there was a lot of pageantry around the fact that Mac Jones was the first quarterback that Belichick had taken in the first round. Now, granted, he had Brady for, you know, 20 But that years. might have been a knee-jerk reaction, too. Okay, but you think by taking this kid, you know, who played in a smaller conference, but taking him in the fourth round, which, you know, a lot of teams, if they take somebody at that spot, there should be a starter down the line. Do you think he was hedging his bets a little bit? Oh, it was a sneaky good pick, right? I mean, listen, when he went to the uh, Boca Raton Bowl, Zappi, he ended up breaking... Joe Burrow's record, and uh, and also B.J. Simon's record of Texas Tech. So, I mean, and that was against Appalachian State, who obviously they they're known for their talent on defense and running the ball. So, I mean, he's good. He finished the season with 5,900 yards passing and 62 touchdowns, dude. I mean, the NCAA All Division record is held by Blaine Hawkins of Iowa Central College with 63. This guy's a good quarterback. People don't know him, though. So I wonder if this is going to set itself up like a situation for another team that's uh, geographically close to us. If you remember when the you know, the franchise formerly known as the Redskins, formerly known as the football team, now currently known as the Commanders, <laughs> yeah. uh, when they when they drafted uh, when they drafted RG3, they moved up to draft him early. Yeah. And then in that same draft, it might have been the fourth round as well, um, when Shanahan ended up taking uh, Kirk Cousins. And yeah. later down the line, now partially due to injuries for RG3, you know, Cousins became the starter. And, I mean, yes, he's definitely carved out a good career for himself. Right. And why it was a sneaky good pick, too, is also just a little side note, is that Zappi was from Houston Baptist, who nobody knows. You know, and, I mean, he was really good there. I mean, he had basically, uh, excuse me, about a 63% completion ratio when he was at Houston Baptist. And, hey this is why you do your due diligence when it comes to the draft and, and getting depth at these positions because you never know who your backup quarterback is until you need to know who your quarterback is. Right, right. I mean, you know, I, 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 just because the hometown Ravens guy, um, you know, everybody was wondering what was going on when they picked up Lamar Jackson. And all I did for years is watch him cover the spread and run in between. He would literally run full speed when he was at Louisville up to the line, turn sideways at full speed, slither through, and come back out at full speed on the other side and run for 60 yards for a touchdown. Oh, no, that I'm dude, like, that, that guy's dude's, crazy. That a freak. He's a freak. So, and, and everybody was like, why would they take Lamar Jackson? Well, now they know. You know. So this might just be another case of that. This guy can sling the rock, man. No, and like I stated earlier, there's a precedent in New England for the backup quarterbacks to yeah. really perform well when given the opportunity. And, and he does give them opportunities when they come in. So, 
Now, while I'm certainly impressed with what I've seen from this kid thus far, I think that it's way too early to state that there is a legitimate competition brewing in Foxborough. After all, Jones has earned a lot of goodwill in those parts, leading his team to the playoffs as a rookie last year. In the meantime, let's call this for what it is, folks. A, a great story. I'll be interested to see how a healthy Jones performs behind a rushing attack that has been building steam over the last four weeks, averaging 146.5 yards per game, led by sophomore tailback Ramondre Stevenson, who has averaged 94 yards on a healthy 5.37 yards per carry during that period, and will only see more touches moving forward with fellow tailback Damian Harris limited with an ailing hamstring. When the last saw the Patriots, they climbed back to 500 with that victory over Cleveland, which was significant for a number of reasons. Not only did it allow them to keep pace in what is suddenly a competitive AFC East, but it marked the 324th win in the career of Belichick, tying him for second place on the all-time list with none other than George Hallis, who ironically led the Bears, who they're playing tonight, from 1920 to 1960 to 1967. That's a good find, Jay. How's that for longevity? Yeah, that's a, that's a good find. Wow. Making it all the sweeter was the fact that it came at the expense of the Browns, who Belichick earned his first head coaching gig with back in 1991, where he would lead them to their last playoff appearance for 25 years. While this matchup was relatively close in the first half, with New England leading 10-6 to in intermission, the visitors would own the final two quarters of action, outscoring the hosts 28-9 to the rest of the way. In the end, the Pats turned out nearly 400 yards of total offense on 21st downs, converting 7-14 third downs and possessing the football for a commanding 35 minutes and 5 seconds of game time. As I stated earlier, ball, Zappi balled out with over 300 passing yards, while Stevens... Sin imagine, I'm sorry, Stevenson amassed 91 yards from scrimmage and a pair of touchdowns on 24 touches, with tight ends Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith combining for six catches and 122 yards and a touchdown. Remember, Belichick acquired both of these guys in free agency two summers ago with the expectations that they would play major roles in the passing game. As easy as it would be to keep gushing over Zappi and Stevenson, the defense earned more than their share of plaudits in this one, Jeff or relegating Cleveland to 328 total yards on 16 first downs, including just 70 yards against the most prolific rushing attack in the league. Hell, they limited NFL leading rusher Nick Chubb to a season-low 56 yards and no touchdowns on just 12 carries. God, what's Chicago going to do? Yeah. Belichick also put together a horror show for his former quarterback, Jacoby Brissett, who could muster only 200. He was one of the Colts guys back then. Uh, this is yeah, all six degrees yeah, of separation. I've got you yes, right now. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, Brissett can only muster 244 yards on 21 of 44 passing for a touchdown, two interceptions, four sacks, and a pair of fumbles, including one that was lost. Yeah, it was a hard day at the office yeah, for the guy. Indeed. Uh, looking to tonight's matchup with the Bears, Belichick has won and covered each of his last five encounters with this particular opponent after losing outright, outright back in 2000 towards the end of his first season in Foxborough. New England is 6-4 and four against the spread in their last 10 games overall at Gillette Stadium and has put together a 7-2 and two record against the spread in their last 10 games when branded as a home favorite. On the injury front, this team is fairly banged up in uh, several areas, the least of which being quarterback. Veteran receivers Kendrick Bourne and Nelson Aguilar are both questionable with toe and hamstring maladies, while the aforementioned Harris is also questionable once again with that nagging hamstring that I touched upon earlier. Uh, on defense, promising rookie corner Jonathan Jones, who's had a couple picks in a 
in the last few games, is questionable with an ailing ankle, while sophomore defensive tackle Christian Barmore carries that same designation with a sore knee suffered in last weekend's trip to Northern Ohio. Uh, Jeff, while there were some signs of life for the Bears last week, Belichick has a long history of crafting nightmare game plans for young quarterbacks. And given what I saw him do to Cleveland, I have a very hard time believing Fields and company will move the football much in this one. And oh, how about the irony of passing George Hallis on the all-time win list against the team that Hallis coached? Did you see the clip where the rookie goes and gets that touchdown and goes, goes, goes to Belichick, the game ball? Yeah. And Belichick looks at him like, what are you doing, kid? Get that ball out of here, right? I've I've got enough of these in my life. Yeah, he's like, come on, man. (laughs) Act like you've been here before. (laughs) It's interesting, though. You know, Zappy, if he starts his game and stuff, I mean, you know, the the Patriots have been steadily increasing their offensive production each week, you know, for the most part. Hey, remember at the beginning of the year where it was like, they don't have an offensive coordinator. Right, right. (laughs) Now, and they they scored seven points at Miami. Then they went to 17, then to 26, little down to 24 when they went to Green Bay. But then they went, you know, scored 29 against Detroit and now 38 at Cleveland. You know, and the thing is, is that the Lions makers haven't caught up to uh, Zappy yet. No, you know, I mean, they haven't. You know, he's covered the spread in all the starts. So, you know, well, for what it's all worth, the games he's been in. Actually. For what it's worth, Jeff, I don't think that the odds makers are going to catch up to him in this one. I don't. So uh, give me the Pats 24 to 12, and hopefully it'll be the last time I see Dub Bears on primetime this year. Thank you, Jamie. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for our seventh episode of the Oracle Sports Podcast. Jeff and I would once again like to thank you for lending us your ears and your time. As always, the insight and picks are free of charge, and though I've certainly cooled off over the past few weeks, uh, yeah, 0-2 sucks. We're still a collective 16 and 8 That's 67%. That's If you're not 67%, you need to listen. In this case, numbers don't lie, guys. And gals. Uh... Which means you could be helping yourself if you chose to do so. And speaking of helping yourself, we implore you all to find us on Twitter and Facebook while taking a deep dive into our website, theoraclesports.com, where you'll find a wealth of information, some free, some premium, designed to build your bankroll. There are daily crystal ball plays authored by yours truly, while Jeff has you covered with a number of packages to meet all your betting needs, including the recently released College Lock of the Year weekend that he referenced earlier, Again, for $99, over 12 plays. You're guaranteed to hit the lock of the year, guaranteed, or you get the rest of the season for free. Guess what? You're also guaranteed, this is a double guaranteed weekend, to finish the weekend at least 10 games above 500. Or, again, the rest of the season's free. So, and, and with us right now, currently, at a ridiculous rate of 67% for the season... You can't lose. Yeah, and you can win all the games except the lock, and you get the season for free. I mean, it's just that's good. That's a great deal. Uh, I don't need to talk about that anymore. Uh, but with that said, I'm the prophet. He's the oracle, and we're out of here like Robbie Anderson's tenure in Carolina.